I am the bone of my microphone. Salt is my body, and analysis is my blood. I have created over a thousand shitposts, unknown to death, nor known to life. Have withstood pain to create many recordings. Yet, those hands will never hold a five-star. So, as I pray, Unlimited Blade Jerks! Hi everyone, uh, joking intro aside, we wanted to just give a quick trigger warning in the interest of your health and safety. Fate is kind of a violent anime and there is some body horror involved, so if those things um, are triggering or upsetting to you in any way, uh, you might want to stay away. In addition, in this episode in particular, unfortunately, there is some mention of child sexual abuse or CSA. Um, it's a very awful thing to talk about, especially right out of the gate, but it does come up in the first episode. Um, we speak about it a little bit from the 20-minute to the 27-minute mark, so if you want to skip over that, or if you just completely want to bow out now, we completely understand, because it's really awful to talk about. Just in the interest of your health and safety, we wanted to be upfront with everyone. Thanks so much. Bye. Hi! Welcome to the first episode of Unlimited Bladrix. I'm Scout. And I'm, I, I can go by Amanda or Onion, depending on what you feel like calling me. I'm either one. It's fine. So I guess we could start out by saying I decided to make a podcast because I got a degree in broadcasting and I don't, I concentrated on audio and I didn't really get to use it much since I graduated and I really love Fate, and Amanda is much smarter at Fate than me. Well, it's not necessarily smarter. It's more just, I've, look, when you roleplay a character from Fate, you have to know it backwards and forwards because there's a lot of shit you can trip up on. Like, that was probably my biggest complaint of playing Irisville on Dreamwoods because it was like... There's just so much, and it's, <laughs> it's really tough because Fate has, like, there's the main canon that we're going to cover first, and then there's all these, like, side stories. And it's it's really tough sometimes to keep your universes straight. Yeah, especially because it it never straight contradicts itself, but there's always, like, weird exceptions and, like, I don't, it, it's, it's hard. Some It's just, it's hard. Yeah, and Amanda's going to, I'm going to ask a lot of questions and Amanda's going to tell me about it. Um, but I guess the first thing that we should cover is what is fate? Amanda, can you tell me what is fate? Yeah, I can give a little history lesson. Fate Stay Night originated as an gay or an adult visual novel in 2004. It was created by Type Moon, a company which was founded by writer Kinoko Nasu and illustrator Takahashi Takeuchi. Uh, it follows the story of the Fifth Holy Grail War over three paths that correspond with the three heroines of the story. But mom, what's a Holy Grail War? I'm glad you asked, little Timmy. Uh, the Holy Grail War is essentially a battle between seven mages, uh, and the prize is the Holy Grail, of course, that is... An omnipotent wish-granting device. No, it has nothing to do with religion. Each participating mage, uh, heretofore called Master, summons a heroic spirit, their servant, to fight for them. 
Uh, heroic spirits can be pulled from the past, present, or future, but are generally notable figures from the past, be they historical, folklore-based, mythological, or even fictional. As heroic spirits are very well known, uh, revealing their true names to foes could also reveal their weaknesses. So we summon the heroic spirits into classes. There are seven classes, obviously, and we have Saber, Lancer, Archer, Rider, Caster, Assassin, and Berserker. They're all pretty self-explanatory. Saber wields a sword. Lancer wields a lance, a spear, something of that sort. Uh, Archer gets a little complicated because it's pretty much any ranged weapon. Um, Rider is people who are associated with some kind of chariot, uh, a horse, uh, just something that they literally ride on. Uh, caster is magic. Assassin is spirits whose their approaches. They're assassins. <laughs> Literally, they're assassins. Like, I don't know what to say about that. The thing about riders is, like, anybody can be summoned as a rider because if you've seen a horse in your lifetime, you could be summoned as a rider for some reason. Kind of, sort of. But, um, but uh, Berserker is the mad warrior class. There's a very hot debate as to whether all heroic spirits can potentially be summoned as berserkers or whether there's some kind of a criteria of you had to have gone mad at least once in your life. That said, berserker is the mad warrior. It's just, yeah, that's it. Yeah, it can kind of fall into some dodgy territory sometimes. Um We'll get into that. Oh, I'm not. Hang on uh, with that because I still got a little more. Uh, okay, sorry. Okay, still got a little more. So, Fate's Day Night was adapted into an anime series by Studio Dean in 2006. As I understand it, it was pretty well received at the time, but it has not aged well in the least. Uh, that anime was primarily based on the Fate Route, which follows Saber's story. Uh, Studio Dean did another adaptation in 2010, a movie that followed the second route, Unlimited Blade Works, which follows Rin's story. However, that also hasn't aged well. We will not be covering those because we don't like them. Yeah, sorry. Like, it was okay for a first attempt at an adaptation, but no. Photoball owns our entire asses. It's true. Uh, so since the release of Fates of the Night in 2004, we've gotten uh, approximately a million adaptations, versions, spinoffs, side stories, etc., etc. Uh, a couple notable ones that I just kind of want to throw out there. We're not going to cover them specifically, but just to have the, the names if you want to look them up a little bit more. Um, there's Fate Hollow Ataraxia, which was a visual novel released as a sequel to Stay Night in 2005. However, it sadly never got adapted into anything, so we're unable to cover it, unfortunately. Uh, Fate Stay Night, uh, actually, it had a re-release in 2007 under the subtitle Rialta Nua, which it's the same story, but none of the awkward sex scenes, which is great. It's very good. Because can you imagine being an Aerogay fan in 2004 and picking up this visual novel, and you're like, yeah, great. I'm just going to, you know, I, you know, do what people do when they consume adult media. And uh, 
you have to wade through an immense story to get to any of that content. And that's the thing is fate is so like, fate is very detailed. There's a lot of world building that goes into it. There's a lot of character work and it really like, it, it doesn't need the H game content, frankly. Absolutely. So, like, I'm, I'm really into, I haven't played real to but like, I want to because it, this is this is my shit, and I don't I don't I mean like I don't need the porn yeah. right now. <laughs> uh, the unfortunate thing is that uh, back in two thousand four, when they were first releasing the visual novel, as far as I understand it, they were under the impression that it was not going to sell unless it was marketed as an arrow gay. Which, um, again. I can't imagine being someone trying to pick up an Arrogay and being like, wow, I just played this for 20 hours just to get to the first sex scene. It, it just didn't make sense. Yeah, because a lot. Of, first of all, a lot of the sex scenes are super problematic, super triggering, and super, like, frankly, like, very bad. The ones that aren't even, like, super fucked up are bad. So... I mean, like, it. there are definitely points in, like, the anime adaptations and, like, the further media and stuff where you can point to it and be like, yep, this was an H game at one point, and we'll get there. Um, But it doesn't need it. I'm glad it started where it was because otherwise we wouldn't have this trash fire that I really, really like. (laughs) But... I'm glad that it is not super horny all the time now. No, I get you. Because, you know, having read the original Arrogay, it was, it was, it was just uncomfortable at times. So I am sincerely glad that it's grown out of that for the most part. Extremely. Uh, Okay. So uh, just to mention two other notable titles from Type Moon, we have Kara no Kyokai and Tsukihime. Both of them came out before Fate's Day Night, and I bring them up just because they fill in a lot of world building and the lore of what we call Nasuverse. So they're they're definitely not needed to consume Fate and enjoy Fate, but if you want to kind of have some holes filled in, they're a good place to start. Yeah, so like... I haven't experienced either of them, and I still, like, for the most part, understand what's going on and really enjoy it. Uh, but like Amanda said, if you want to do it, it's good. Uh, so the way I usually pitch fate to people is a bunch of wizards get together and summon, like, mythical heroes as their familiars and fight. That's, like, the long and short of it. It's the good shit. And I'm really, I am here because of the Greek mythology and the Arthurian, like, legend stuff that's why i'm here <laughs> amanda why are you here i'm here because of fate zero really um and the role-playing community that i mentioned before because a friend of mine played saber and i was never super interested in saber as she was portrayed by the fandom before, or at least how i understood she was portrayed by the fandom before which was very rooted in waifu culture But I was very interested in my friend's portrayal of Saber. So I was like, "Mm, I kind of want to go and see the uh, source material. And they played Fate Zero Saber. So that's where I started. I started with Fate Zero, which I can tell you a little bit about that too, before we skedoidle into that. Is that cool? Yeah, hit it. 
Okay, so Fate Zero originated as a light novel series running from 2006 to 2007. It was written by Gen Uroguchi. Uh, you might know him from Madoka Magica, from Psychopaths, and if you want to reach back a little further in time, Sayano Uta. Fate Zero follows the story of the fourth Holy Grail War, which makes it the prequel to Fate Stay Night. The anime, produced by Ufotable, that anime uh, aired between 2011 and 2012. And uh, Ufotable went on to adapt Fate Stay Night's Unlimited Blade Works in uh, 2014 to 2015. And they're now currently adapting the third route, which has never been adapted before, Heaven's Feel, which follows Sakura's story. We saw it in the movie theater like three weeks yeah, ago. it was really good. It was a lot. Well, that was the first one. That was the first one. We got two more coming. Yeah. So I'm super excited about that. But anyway, that was my little history lesson. I know it was kind of an info dump, but... I like to experience it. But hopefully just kind of laid the groundwork. I know I threw some titles around. So, you know, if anybody wants to get a little more information... Um, There is the Tight Moon Wiki, which I'm not going to recommend without a grain of salt because there's good information there. There's also bad information there. Yeah. So, (laughs) you know, it's a good place to start. Mm -hmm. But there's like tons and tons of spoilers. So if you're watching along with us and you haven't seen it, anything yet, um, just like Chad. Avoid. Very Avoid. Avoid. (laughs) Do not look anything up because... Holy moly. Yeah, these are very, very well-known stories. And if you don't want to get it spoiled, just just don't. Just don't. Yeah. Just don't. So Fate Zero is my personal favorite of all of the Fate things. Uh, because most of my favorite like heroic spirits are from it. And my favorite mage ever is in it. So I'm really excited to get started. Same. It's going to be good. Um, so today we are talking about, um, I think we talked about this, but we were thinking about only doing two episodes per podcast episode, right? Yeah, we're going to do two. But because the first one kind of clocks in at about 45 minutes, we figured that we'd cover the first episode by itself, especially since that is also a huge info dump. Yeah, it's very exposition heavy. Yeah, there really isn't much story that happens other than look at this character look at this character look at this character it's extremely about introducing you to characters and most of my notes are just like i love iris feel i wrote i i must have written god bless iris feel at least 15 times i mean because i love her very very much fucking same so like we love one lady So this episode is called The Summoning of Heroes. It's the first episode of the first season, and it's available on Netflix and Hulu and, I believe, Crunchyroll, I want to say. So it starts off in the Einsburn Mansion, and we meet Kiritsuku, Iris Feel, and their baby daughter, Elias Feel. First off, like we said before, we love one lady! My um, God, Iris feel very good. It, it's so, here's the thing. For me, it's so interesting. And I, I'm not, I'm going to try not to spoil anything here. But it's really interesting to see Iris feel grow throughout the journey of the show. Just because like so much of her belief system and traits and like happiness is reliant on other people, especially Kuritsugu. Early on in the show right here, 
but it's really exciting to see her grow and gain her own agency and form her identity as a person. Her journey is so good, and I love to experience her. This is a great summary of Iris Feel Not the episode. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's okay, it's funny. I mean, because, like, literally same, but, like, fill us in on the other people. Do we? I I don't. Um, Obviously, so Iris Feel is a pretty tall person, I want to say. She has long white hair and red eyes. And in, She's 5'2". Yeah. Oh, fuck, really? She's I small. I always imagined her as very I'm, tall. I'm pretty sure she's 5'2". Fuck. I, I might be, I'm, might be a little wrong, but she's, she's pretty short. All right. Well, listen, I'm four foot nine. So everybody's tall to me. That's true. <laughs> so, um, she, but she does have very long white hair and she has red eyes with one eyelash. Very important. And her, her appearance is definitely kind of ethereal. Um, do we learn anything about like why she looks that way in this episode? I don't remember i'm pretty sure they cover the whole homunculus thing yes. but okay. but i don't so, think that they cover the um the origin of the homunculi okay yeah we'll get there later so i did take a like a little bit note about that so can you explain what a homunculus is as far as fate goes i mean it's pretty much the same idea as any kind of fictional homunculus the, it's um a magically created person, essentially. Okay, so the next scene, uh, so the next scene we meet Kiritsugu, uh, no, not Kiritsugu, fuck. There's a lot of characters with K names in this show. Um, <laughs> that always trips me up. But anyway, so the next scene we meet uh, Kire Kotsumine, who is a priest, and Oh, gosh. What's Tosaka's first name? Tokiomi. Tokiomi Tosaka. And uh, Risei Tosaka. And they pretty much explain what the Holy Grail War is. This is Risei, like... What, hold on. Risei Kotamine. Did I just say Risei Kiritsugu? No, you said, um, you said Risei Tosaka. I'm gonna... Yards. <laughs> um, I'm very nervous. I like... No, I had this moment of like... Is he Tosaka's father? No, he's Kiri's yeah, father, right? I don't think right? he really shows up again after this scene, though. Like, Oh, he absolutely does. Oh, shit. This is why I have Amanda around, because I'm Hi. not smart. Uh, I'm, I'm a dumb It's idiot. not about smart. It's just, oh, please. Uh, but, so they explain the Holy Grail War, um, Kire and, and Tosaka and Father Rise, and my friend Sarah and I were watching this the other day. Oh, <laughs> this is really funny, like, above them shot where, like, I think Kira is standing in the center of the room. Mm-hmm. And Risei and Tosaka are just walking around him. And it looks like, um, she said it looks like they're in, like, an imaginary swimming pool. And Risei and Tosaka are trying to make like the whirlpool happen <laughs> and Kira is just like oh guys I don't want to swim <laughs> and I thought that was very good it's pretty I nice. liked to experience it but it was like that's definitely like a very weird shot it's very evocative and filmic but 
I don't know why they're walking around in a circle. Yeah, it's very weird. Uh, but this scene is definitely like necessary to new viewers. And I think um, I wrote, who are we supposed to root for? I think that's always something that fate kind of throws at us is we're never really sure who the good guy is and who the bad guy is. And I always think that's kind of interesting in media. Yeah, it's, there's really, I mean, there's alignments. It's sort of like the D&D alignments. They don't, they don't match up to the D&D alignments precisely. It's pretty close. They do do that. That aside, because I think that the way that they categorize them is completely uh, silly. But um, a lot of the characters fall into morally gray areas. There's, there's really no clear good or evil, except for a thing that we'll find out yeah. later. But that's a spoiler. <laughs> oh, yeah. This was my question. How did, uh, how did Kirei's dad have a kid if he was a priest? Because they're, they're not Catholic. Oh, I was very under the impression that they were Catholic. Mm-mm. Okay. Interesting. No, they're just some kind of like non-denominational church. It's just because as much as it's like this is a church, it's they don't do religious things. It's literally they're honestly kind of just there to antagonize the mages association. Yeah, the church hates the mages, Um, and I think they kind of use like the Christian iconography, like for like the mysticism sense, kind of like Evangelion does, mm. rather than being like, this is definitely a Christian yeah. church. But because I was raised Catholic and I saw like the priest's garments and stuff, I had assumed that they mm-hmm. were Catholic. So, uh, but the next scene, oh, I also have one note. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't really remember why, but it very much grossed me out to see Tosaka swirling his wine glass. It was very disturbing to me. I didn't like to oh. see it. Um, but in the next scene, I was super excited because we finally meet, uh, Reen Tosaka, who is one of the heroines of Fate Stay Night, uh, which we'll get to later. But here we meet her as a little kid. I want to say she's in elementary school. Yeah, she is about, I want to say she's like seven-ish, seven, eight. Yeah, that sounds about right. And Reen is with her mom and her uncle, Karia, and she and her mom kind of like they find out that Sakura Reed's sister is going away to go live with the Mato family which is another uh, mage family that's Karia's family Reen is Tosaka's daughter so this is a question that I had because I don't remember is Karia like related to Aoi Reen's mom somehow no they are not related um I'm pretty sure they were childhood friends or at least younger friends, they were effectively engaged before Tokiomi happened. Oh, wow. But but the whole thing that kind of broke them up was that Karia learned Zoken's plan for his and Aoi's children. And he was like, uh-uh, not doing this. So he gave up his inheritance to the family and the family magic, and he just left. And he gave up in his pursuit of Aoi, even though he was extremely in love with her because Aoi is from a family whose every family kind of has a magic specialty and her family's is to bring out the best of their spouse's magic in their children. So she knew about magic before she got married. Okay. Uh Interesting. So she was kind of destined to be the wife of a powerful mage. And that's why when Karia fucked off, 
it was a very easy choice for her to get engaged to Tokiomi. Gotcha. And then when he comes back, she's already engaged and there's really nothing he can do. But he decides to kind of watch over her and the children that she and Tokiomi have. Uh, and that's kind of where he comes in as the uncle figure. Yeah, and this scene really kind of paints him as like a heroic character mm-hmm. and like a... Like well, a he tries very hard. Uncle. Yeah, it's interesting to see his start. My next note is Zoken Mato, retire, bitch. Yeah, same. Because he's very bad. And like, so Zoken Mato is the head of the Mato family. This is the next scene. Um, And he's like a very old man. And he's a slime ball. He's the slime man, as it were. I hate him very much. But every time I watch this scene, I forget how much I hate him until I see this scene. He's very bad. Amanda, if you just want to talk about what happens in this, because I really hate it. Um, oh, are we talking about Sakura now? Yes. All right. Well, the whole, I'll, I'll just gloss over it a little bit. I think bit. we should probably give. Yes, absolutely. Tr- trigger. E-W. Yeah. Um, actually, trigger warning. We should have done this way at the beginning of the episode. Okay. Um, trigger warnings for the first episode of Fate Zero. Um, definitely CSA, uh, which child sexual abuse, um, and, uh, worms. If you don't like worms, there's one scene you don't want to watch. Veins. Uh, yeah, well, uh, really just kind of like body horror when it comes to Karia. And I think that's about it. Yeah, that's about it. Veins is just a scout thing. No, I get you. But but body horror is, I think that's an easy way to just kind of umbrella that. Yeah. Okay, so Sakura. So Sakura. Um, as we learned in the scene with Aoi, um, the Tosakas had two children, Rin and Sakura. Both of them had equal magic potential. That said... Only one child can inherit the family magic. Uh, I'm not sure if we learn this quite yet, but it's real. It's not a spoiler, so I'm just going to go with it. Um, the Mato family, uh, their bloodline is way thinning out, and the magic within their line is essentially dying. So it was kind of an easy decision to say, "Hey, I have two daughters." who are extremely potentially powerful mages, you have no one. Would you like to adopt my daughter? So Zoken... It's very sad. It is. Um, it's much more covered in the uh, light novels. And as I understand it, um, the other kind of part of this equation was that, well, he has two potentially powerful mage daughters. He's going to choose one, and he, being a very traditional Mages Association following mage, um, when the Mages Association decides to swoop in and say, hey, you're not using that daughter. Can we have her for research and experiments? He couldn't say no. I hate it. Yeah. So he saw that passing her to the Matos would give her a future. That said, 
I I am under the impression that he did not know how the Mato family magic would be given to her. Because, right, because in, I don't think anybody knows about this. Yeah, Zoken keeps it very quiet. Um so uh the next scene is it's 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 very upsetting and it makes me angry and yeah. mad and feel bad. It's literally Sakura getting her training by being in the worm pit room. And um I'm not sure if it's this scene or another scene, but No, it's this scene. It's this scene. Oh, uh, well she 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 basically describes being defiled by them. Yeah. They're pe- they talk about they're her womb a lot. Bad. And I wrote, I specifically wrote a note, stop talking about Sakura's room. Zoken is so awful. Yeah. This, it's crest worms are so awful. I hate this scene. It makes me so I'm going to be angry. straight up. I'm going to be straight up. This is probably the most problematic gets absolutely at least and they like kind of they zero. Bu- yeah they bust out of the gate with it mm-hmm. so it it's a little off-putting yeah but it doesn't particularly get addressed in such a graphic way again mm-hmm. so um if that put you off um i understand my our listeners our viewers as no one's watching anything except for the show i'm an idiot anyway um yeah, um, if that didn't turn you off completely, it just kind of put you off, it won't, it, it's not going to be dis- visually but, that graphic yeah. ever again. Because this um, was a really difficult scene for me to watch. Um, yeah. I had to stop multiple times. And Oh yeah, it's, it's not an easy one to no, get through. It makes me very angry and have a lot of difficult feelings that I have to unpack. Um, yeah, sure. That I really don't like. But, oh yeah, I wrote this is so fucking awful, it makes me want to jump into the screen and throttle Zoken. Like, I'm so angry about this. Um, it's I mean, o- it's I, okay. Should we move on to the next thing? Yeah, because I'm just going to get really, really, really Yeah, let's really, move on. What happens to Sakura when she's not in the worm pit? Does like Because they do show her, like, existing oh outside the worm pit I yeah mean, does does she go to school does she like what does she do yeah she she goes to school she i i mean she's a kid otherwise but she's a pretty broken yeah kid, to be absolutely honest. i mean like so it makes sense god yeah so it's kind of um i mean she has a she has a brother who we don't really see anything of in fate zero thank god because i hate him much yeah he's a much more prominent character in he is he is he is a character in fate stay night let alone prominency because he's not in fate zero at all yeah thank god um that said um we hate him yeah yeah um i don't want to get into it right now because this is I was going to say also because that's a, that's also a, a spoiler. Big spoiler and that last scene that we just talked about is a lot for me so I don't want to talk yeah, about let's him move right on. now. No, let's okay, move on. So but, but my, my next note. Well, my point okay. for bringing him up was just that she has someone that she could theoretically play with yeah. if she wanted to. She she goes to school. My next note is 
more on a mm-hmm. on a happier note. Um, mm-hmm. so I divided my notes by scene, and the only note for I have this next in this next scene is I love Iris Beale's princess serenity dress. Which scene would that? Be? It's the next scene. I couldn't tell you what happens because I don't remember because I didn't take any notes on it because like nothing really like it was just more exposition. The uh, only one I that I feel the only one that I can think of um, that you may not have taken notes on and that you were so focused on Irisfield was probably the one where Kirisugu is looking over files yes! about the other masters. Yes, that's right. He's looking at the files of the other masters because the next scene is the next scene is at the clock tower. Okay. Um, yes. So yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, do you want me to describe that scene since I I know it really yes, well? Yes, because all I was okay. looking at was Iris Beale's Princess Serenity dress and thinking about how much I love it and how much I want to wear it. <laughs> okay, so uh, basically Kiritsugu is sitting at his desk and chilling with Irisville and he's looking over files about the other masters, about families they come from, about their strengths and their weaknesses, this, that, the other. Uh, the only really, really notable one that I think we should make note of in this particular scene is he looks over Kirei's file and we learn a little bit about Kirei's backstory I mean, it, it's very, um, it's very surface level, but in the end, Kirutsugu decides that this man will be his greatest enemy. And they're extremely, like, two sides of the same coin. Extremely. Very much. That will play out through a lot of the yeah. show, which I love. And even later on. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, it pretty much affects, like, any of the main timeline fate stuff. It really does, mm-hmm. like, affect it and come into play but in the next scene so we go to the clock tower which is this kind of i'm not sure if it's like college or high school but it's definitely older students it's like a magical school hogwarts kind of uh for mages hogwarts for mages um and we meet yeah kenneth Amoy archibald he is a teacher and fuck him he's a smug turd i don't like him um i don't like him he's just very haughty yeah um, he, but he's very uh, traditional, uh, like mm-hmm. Tokiomi, but Tokiomi is a lot more bare because Kanith just wants to rub your face in it constantly. Yeah. He's really, he's being really spicy and mean to one of his students, who we also meet in the scene. Very exciting for me because he is my favorite mage of all time. He is a little kid. I want to say, God, how old is Waver? I was going to say a young college age. Yeah. So I want to say he's like 19, 20, and his name is Waver Velvet. And I love him so much. He's very, very good. He's 4'11", which makes me very happy because I am also 4'11", and, and I cosplay him, and I love him. Waver Velvet, very good boy. Um, <laughs> one of my notes here is, why is Waver's hair so flat? Uh, I think he needs like a little bit of mousse in it. Um... Well, I'm not really sure of specifically that question, but I can say that um, Takeuchi, when he was designing Waver, literally wanted him to look stupid. Oh! He's supposed to look like a smartass who can't do I mean, he is a little bit of a smartass. That's the point. That yeah. it's like he wanted he wanted him to look like this little punk-ass brat who is so confident in himself, but can't back it up and that's why he has flat hair i will i like i said i can't exactly answer that, <laughs> but i can answer like a general design question 
Okay, and he has green hair here, but we see him later on, uh, and he has, like, brown hair. So I am extremely very convinced that Waver loves to dye his hair green. The lighting. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Do you mean when he grows up? Yeah, when he grows up, he has brown hair. I don't know, he grew out of it. Waver just... Fuck do I know. He was in his, like, emo phase, or his punk phase, and he loved to dye his hair green. Which, like, same. Extreme same. And Waver wrote this essay about, like, his ideas about magic. And Kanith is like, no, you're a stupid idiot. And he, like, publicly humiliates Waver in this scene. And it makes me very upset, like, to watch and experience. And I wrote a note, like, people might call Waver whiny. But, like, he was just publicly humiliated in front of a class of, like, almost 100 kids. So he deserves to vent a little bit. And... It makes me so upset to see him being yelled at because I really, I love how curious and daring he could be in general, but especially like as we see him grow. But in the next scene where he's kind of like walking through the hallways, uh, his hair looks a lot better. It's much less flat. So maybe getting angry, maybe he's like a little kitty. Um, oh my God. Getting angry made his hair stick up a little bit. Uh, but I love this scene because it shows... Waver's kind of like, he has a big, strong drive and a lot of ambition, and it kind of waxes and, and wanes throughout the series, but this is the first time that we really get to see this, and I think it's really inspiring to see, um, because Waver is definitely the youngest of the cast, and especially if you, I, I watched this show, I think we watched it when, the first time I watched it, I was like 23, I want to say, and I related a lot to Waver at this point, because I was still in college. So it was, it was really good to see. I love Waver Velvet. That's my TED Talk on Waver Velvet. You covered what his essay was about, right? Oh, uh, yeah, about like his, he had very strong opinions about his way of magic. And Kenneth was like, no. Well, specific, I, I just want to interject. Yeah, hit it. Specifically, it's because uh, Waver wrote an essay about how even mage families that haven't been around for a long time and those who don't have very strong magic circuits or I don't know, whatever, whatever the specifics of the essay were, he was arguing that they can also become great magic users or whatever else, blah, blah, blah. Kenneth, however, is from a very, very long established family and he uh, hates newcomers, basically. Uh, like I said, he's extremely obnoxious about his everything. So um, he basically just wanted to make an example of Waver, and that's why he tore him down, because it was, um, he's trying to make a point of, if it isn't in your blood for a long time, then you can't be a good mage, which is terrible. I I won't say anything else, because I don't want, I don't want to color anyone's view of anything before they see more of him for himself. Experience it. Yeah, I just don't like it when people are mean. No, no, I, I mean, it's... it's. <laughs> I'm, I'm very biased towards Waver. Well, no, I, I mean, first of all, Waver is a good boy, even if he's a pain in the ass. But, like, same. <laughs> 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 but either way, it's still wrong for a teacher to humiliate their student in front of the whole fucking class. Extremely! This happened to me a lot when I was in school. I, I wrote, like, Waver here is extremely me in eighth grade. Because I had an English teacher who loved to, like, I would write an essay or whatever, and she loved to, like, cut me down in front of the class. And this extremely reminded me of that. And I was like, holy shit, this is fucked up. Yeah, it's, it's uh, not good. Up. 
yeah, it's very. And bad. he's probably like the least fucked up of of the fucked up things going on, but um, yeah. it's still not good. It's still bad. Still, still bad. So, but in the next scene, we finally get to see. Uh, this is like apparently it's a meme, but this is Tosaka's magical fax oh. machine. <laughs> I love the magic fax machine. What is this scene about? God, I think this is like his summoning scene, right? No, we we actually don't. We actually oh, don't really see him. Uh, actually, his summoning. We see him at the end of the episode, I believe, um, as he's doing the incantation. But uh, it kind of cuts between everyone right. that's doing the incantation at that time. That's so. True. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely not at this scene, and we don't see the result of his summoning until next episode. I don't believe. That's true. Um, but he has a magical fax machine and a gramophone. And his magical fax machine is like, what's it made out of? It's it's like a, an arm, like a robot arm kind of. But Yeah, I mean, Magitech, it looks kind of steampunky, but say. run by magic. Yeah, and he has a gramophone. So this kind of makes me think of like, I think it kind of symbolizes in a way that Tosaka especially is like an old fashioned kind of guy. Kind of like Kanan. Because we see, it's kind of a juxtaposition between him and Kiritsugu, because we literally just saw Kiritsugu sitting there yeah. with a laptop, and he, I I think he had an actual fax machine in the room. Like, I'm not 100% so. sure, but it's like, we see a mage who's like with the time, and I mean, this is 1994, so it's not great technology, but... But it, yeah, I mean, he's this time, he's using what's available to him, whereas... He loves file folders. Yeah, whereas, whereas Tosaka is just like, no, I am a traditional mage. And he has... And it's like, okay, honey. he has a gramophone to listen to his records on, because he only listens to vinyl, because he likes the warmth of it. The next scene I wrote, I love Iris Veal's hair. And though this... And the other note that I wrote are that these are like mirrored scenes. So the scene with Chosaka and Kirei is kind of mirrored with uh, Kiritsugu and Irisville. And I think that's like filmically very interesting. But I didn't really have a lot of notes on the next scene except for that I love Irisville's hair. Guarantee that like whenever Irisville is in a scene, at least one of us will comment on her being in the scene. (laughs) Because we love one lady. That's true. The next scene, we the one after this, so we meet Waver's grandparents. His grandparents, quote-unquote. Bedtime boy Waver wakes up in his little jammies, and he goes into the kitchen, and see, we see his grandparents. And they're talking to him, and then we find out that Waver kind of put a charm on these two old people to kind of, like, make them believe that they're his grandparents because he wanted to travel to Japan the fight in the Holy Grail War. So he didn't have a place to stay, so he was like, gonna charm some old people. Yeah, he just found some old people. You know, As one like does. you do, you just find old people. Uh, wouldn't it be wacky if whenever you went to an anime convention, you just stayed with some old people that you met? <laughs> just, you know, just putting <laughs> that out there. I don't, I feel like that wouldn't be a good idea, though. No, it would be extremely bad. I don't know why I said <laughs> oh, that. Oh, so the next scene after this is, it's kind of like the starting of the summoning. Mm -hmm. So we see the summoning for Kiritsugu and Iris Beal to summon their servant. I want to say this is the scene where we see Avalon for the first time. Yes. Which is the sheath, what is that called? Scabbard. Scabbard of Excalibur, which was 
a sword from Arthurian legend. So they're going to use Avalon to summon their servant. As a catalyst. And I'm really, yeah, as a catalyst. I'm really excited for them to meet their servant. Uh, So we meet their servant, a saber class servant who presents as female. So their servant is King Arthur, who is known as Artoria Pendragon in Fate. And she's very, very good. And she's summoned as a a saber at this point. So in Fate Grand Order, you can actually summon Artoria as various different classes. And I was wondering, do you think Hiritsugu could have summoned Artoria as a different class? Like, would have that been possible, do you think? Theoretically, I believe that wouldn't be a problem. Um, uh, It's never really explained particularly how each class is summoned specifically except for Berserker because we see that Zoken tells Katia to add that um, line about madness to summon Berserker specifically. Right. But uh, otherwise it's kind of I I just didn't find any resources about specifically you want to summon Saber. How do you summon Saber? Yeah. I I was wondering that for a while. I mean, you obviously you have a catalyst, so you're aiming for a particular person. Heroic spirit. Yeah, a particular heroic spirit. And each heroic spirit, I mean, they kind of have like a set classes that they could be summoned in, really. Because if we're looking at someone like the Lancer from Fate Stay Night, he has, he could be summoned a Lancer, a Saber, a Caster, a Berserker. He, he's he's kind of got the gamut going. Whereas Saber specifically, if we're talking about Grand Order, she was summoned a lot of different ways. Uh, a lot of them were kind of joke summonings, a la the rider Santa Alter. <laughs> and her summer event, she was an archer. So those aren't, I mean, they're canon, but um, those are not particularly relevant here. Um, the one that could be relevant is Lancer, because uh, she did also have a very powerful spear. Uh, it starts with an R, and I cannot pronounce it for the life of me. R-H-O-N-G-O-M-Y-N-I-A-D. Yeah, it looks like it's pronounced Rungomaniad. Um... So yeah, she has a she has a spear too. So I guess if they grabbed that, they would have summoned Lancer, right? Yeah, my my uh, my suspicion is that um, had they a catalyst that related to the spear instead of the sto- the sword, she may have been summoned as Lancer. That said, I just kind of want to note because in the visual novel in. Say night, uh, Saber does state that she couldn't be summoned as another class. However, this is a very long-standing franchise, and uh, yeah, things change. A lot. And that also said, um, the Lancer in Fate Grand Order uh, is actually from an alternate timeline where she never drew the sword from the stone, and she uh, leaned on her spear as her main weapon. So it's uh, it's kind of hard to say exactly with uh, Saber. I think she theoretically could be uh, summoned as a different class, say Lancer. But um, it, it's never really explained how or why. So like, 
not a hundred percent sure how to answer that. And here's my other thing. So like, um, somebody else has Lancer here and, and like, okay. So if they summoned Artoria as Lancer, what would prevent, like, if somebody else had a spear from somebody else, like a, if, a, if, a, if another potential master had a spear from somebody else, what would prevent them from both summoning a Lancer? If a Lancer's already summoned, the Grail will, the Grail will not summon another Lancer. Oh, interesting. So it just, like, wouldn't work. If, well, if you're aiming for a particular spirit that could fit into another class, it might kind of say, like, oh, well, you want that spirit. All right, cool. But I can't put him in Lancer. So, well, he did use a sword in his life. So even if your catalyst is related to the Lance, um, I'll give you Saber because there's already a Lancer. Oh, okay. So it kind of has that as, like, a failsafe. Yeah. That's really cool. At least that's how I figure it would go. Cause... I do like a world building. And the next scene is about Reen and... She comes down the stairs, and Kire is in her house. And I think she says something to him like, if you hurt my dad or if you get my dad hurt, I'm going to beat you up. She says, like, something like that. Oh, while we're um, on the note of the, to- uh, the Tosakas and Kire, um, I, did- I don't remember that you covered this before, so I just kind of I want to interject a little bit. Um, another thing that is kind of important to note is we said earlier that the Mages Association and the church do not get along. So we can ask why are the Tosakas working with a representative of the church? Yeah, why? Uh, (laughs) This is because this is competition for an omnipotent wish-granting device, yeah? Yeah. The church is basically saying, all right, you are the safest option because you don't have a... Tosaka's, I, I'll say this, Tosaka's, his aims are very traditional. They're safe. He is a safe option for the church to bet on to win. So they're basically trying to prevent someone who might wish for something bad from winning by backing Tokyo. Gotcha. So that's why, and also I'm pretty sure in this episode, I don't think it's next episode, they discuss that Kire is basically going to fight alongside Tokiomi. Yeah, I think they say that. But not, but not on the battlefield together, like they're in the shadows working together. And then once they get to a point where they've defeated all the other masters, Kire's servant will dispose of himself and then Tokiomi will be given the win. So, yeah, I just kind of wanted to throw that out there because I figured that was a little, kind of an important tidbit. So, yeah, let's do this real quick before we keep moving on. How did the Holy Grail War start? All right. Um, This is a little involved. I'm going to make this as simple as possible. Um, One thing that I will say we've kind of been getting wrong the whole podcast (laughs) is um, we've been saying magic a lot. There is a very distinct difference between what is called magecraft and what is called magic. Yeah. Magic is miracles, things that cannot be accomplished by human means at all. Magecraft, however, is things that would be unobtainable because of um, financial reasons or 
time reasons, but because you are able to use Magecraft, you can do these in an instant. That said, the Einsburns, who are, um, that's Irisfield's family, they uh, obtained something called, well, it's very silly for me to say something called, it, it, it's the third magic. They, there are five known magics, true magics, in the world. They achieved the third one, uh, and they call it Heaven's Feel. Essentially, it is the materialization of the soul. The idea is that the body is what anchors the soul to this world. Once the body uh, is, for any reason, unable to sustain the soul, uh, the soul returns to, uh, what is it called, Akata, which is, it's very similar to the idea of, I believe it's from Judaism, the guff. Uh, and it's kind of the the place where all souls are taken from and where they return to when they move on from life on this earth. So the whole idea of the materialization of the soul is that it it essentially grants immortality by exist by allowing the soul to exist without a body. The the problem is that the Einsburns, as I kind of referenced before, they're not very good at what they do. Um, they lost the third magic through, uh, I'm not sure whether it would be like um, the loss of knowledge or thinning of bloodline. It, it could be anything, really. It was never really specified as far as I know. Um, so around the turn of the 19th century, the head of the Einsburn family is, um, her name is um, Eustace Liesrich von Einsburn. I cannot pronounce German, so please bear with me. She is friends with Zokin. He is currently known as Makiri. Um, there's a name change at one point. Zokin Makiri is the same person as Zokin Mato. They decide that they want to create a utopia. What, again, this is kind of a little fuzzy, but the whole idea is that they want to recover the third magic, and I believe kind of use it on everyone in the world to eliminate you know, hunger, pain, you know, any anything that really causes human strife. They want to cause third impact. Sort of, yeah. Um, which is kind of, that's a noble goal, but also it's dicey. That said, um, they team up with Nagato Tosaka uh, and create the Holy Grail War system. Uh, it's a little more complicated than this, but uh, the Einsburns provided the Grail system because... The Einsburn's family magic, it, it specializes in wish granting. So it was kind of an easy go there. Uh, the Tosakas provided the land on which to do this ritual, because at the time, the Church and the Mages Association were kind of at each other's throats in, like, Europe. So they were like, hey, let's go to the Far East and not get noticed. <laughs> And then uh, the Makiri provided the command seat system. The ritual that they devised, this, it wasn't actually called the Holy Grail War at the time because it wasn't meant to be a war. It was just meant to be a ritual. The whole idea is to open a path to Akasha, which is also known as the root. It could, it could also be referred to as heaven. Again, it's similar to the idea of the guff. They wanted to recover this third magic to ascend humanity and create utopia. Again, the whole, uh, 
it's very fuzzy in the how they were expecting to recover the third magic, whether they were going to wish for it or whether this path to Akasha, because Akasha also kind of contains all knowledge of the world. So whether they would kind of recover the knowledge from Akasha, it, it, it's, again, fuzzy, but that's the idea. I don't want to get into further specifics about the Holy Grail War because of Fate Zero spoilers, but that is the general idea of how it started. Okay. That was a lot of talking, sorry. I liked it, though, because, like, I, I didn't know. In the next scene, is a, it's a Sakura and Karya scene. Uh, again, I wrote, Zoken is such a fucked up individual. Zoken, very, very, very bad is the thing. Zoken, extremely bad. Uh, Sakura's voice makes me so sad. I want to scoop her up and give her a big, big, big hug. I feel so sad. But Zoken, very bad. Yeah, he's bad, man. Yo- Zoken, extremely bad. And every time he shows up, I want to throttle him. I want to fucking throttle him. Mm. And then the next scene, I wrote, oh, yeah, yeah. So there's this this really cool scene where summoning is kind of juxtaposed between Karya and Tosaka and I think Kiritsuku, mm-hmm. right? And Waver is there also. It, it kind of like flashes between all of them. And it's very cool. As they're, as, they're, as they're doing the incantation and it goes up. I love that scene. It gives me goosebumps every time. So good. The music is very, mm-hmm. very good. And the the way, like, I really, because they're kind of all, like, saying the same mm-hmm. sort of chant. And I really love scenes where, like, they show characters saying all the same thing together. But, like, each person says a line mm-hmm. or something like that. I think that's always a really cool trope to watch in media. Why is Waver using blood and a circle, but nobody else is doing that? Oh, because he sucks. Me too. It's literally because his magic isn't strong enough to just do it. Yeah, that makes sense. So he needs that, um, that tool, basically. Is he, like, getting mana from the chicken? Uh, that I would not be able to tell you. Chicken mana. Chicken mana. I don't like it when veins appear in Karya's face. I don't like to see it or experience yeah, it. It's but it is what it is. You got worms in them, dude. Yeah. Ooh. But we do get to see Ryder in this scene. It's very big and I love one man. Very briefly, yes. Yeah, scene. he just appears and he's like, Hello! And and it's very, very good. Um, yeah, did you have any other things to say about this scene? Uh, no, not really. I, uh, I, I'm just piggybacking off of you to say it's probably one of my favorite scenes in the show because I could just get goosebumps every time. It's very well directed and the music is stellar. The person who composed the music for this show, um, her name is Yuki Kajura. And she is actually my favorite anime composer ever. <laughs> ever since Dot Hack Sign, she's been my favorite. Um, and then and then we get the ending. And this ending fucking slaps. Do you hear that? What? In the background, do you hear her? No, I don't. Oh, well my cat's saying <laughs> Hello, Cosette. Yeah, she's yelling. The ending fucking slaps. It's very, very good. Mm-hmm. And I love to listen to it. 
But there are some spoilers in the animation. So if you are trying to watch the show and not want to know anything about anybody, uh, as far as like the heroic spirits go, I would recommend not watching the ending song. Oh, well, to be perfectly honest, the ending, you see the designs, and the only way that you would actually know who is if you're familiar with the, see, the ending is actually really interesting because it has illustrations of each of the servants, but it's based on actual, like, artwork of, like, real-life artwork of, say, King Arthur, because that's someone that we know. Really? Yeah, so unless you're actually familiar with the art pieces, the, the artwork, you're you're not going to know who they are. They're random designs. Oh, that's very good. I yep. didn't know that. Wow. I really Oh man, I wonder if somebody's made like a like like a video where they show like all this oh, beautiful yeah. artwork. YouTube, check it. Yeah, and I will post it in the show notes for people who know about all the heroic experience and stuff. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. I can't wait. Yeah, they put a lot of thought into that, and I really appreciate it. I love that. And that's very much like Fate. Like, there's a lot of cart art in Fate Grand Order, the mobile game that's, like, reminiscent of different images from, um, different images from mythology and different, like, famous paintings and stuff. And I think Mm -hmm. that's really, it, it shows the attention to detail that Fate is willing to take, and it also shows, like, um, well, I think it's really important to acknowledge like where these different um, heroic spirits and figures came from. I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. So basically, I like to see it. And, and that's the first episode. Hey, y'all. So, uh, Gout's recording died. We're not really sure what happened, but uh, I'm just going to do an outro real fast so we can cap this off. If you want to send questions, comments, concerns, shit posts, I don't care. We have an email, uh, unlimitedbladejerks at gmail.com. Pretty simple. And then we have a Twitter, uh, UBJCast. So yeah, just email us, tweet at us, yell at us. We don't care. It's all good. If you want to follow us personally, I don't recommend following me because I mostly just assault machine on Twitter. But um, my at is onion o h n i o h n. And uh, Scout, uh, if you want to follow her, she talks a lot about D and D and some about JoJo and Disney parks. Disney parks is also a big thing. Oh, I talk about idols. So, uh, yeah, that's a thing. <laughs> but, uh, scouts at is, oh, Jesus. Uh, can you type it out for me, honey? Alderani. Oh, like, like Star Wars. That's right. A-L-D-E-R-A-A-N-I. Uh, I think that'll about do it. Uh, <laughs> I'm not very good at just riffing on my own, but, uh, Please join us for our next recording. We promise to be a little more organized. We're going to do our best. Uh, oh, Jesus Christ. And please remember that people die when they are killed. Have a good night, folks.